we are seeing reports, and I believe them to be true, of foreign funds coming in to American universities pushing certain agendas, largely from Qatar. And that to me seems a very plausible reason for this as well. I mean, this interception, so to speak, of American education is just too coordinated. It's too thought through. It's too comprehensive. It's too broad for this not to be some sort of intentional plan. So I'm not a conspiracist, but I but there but there is some serious reporting right now coming out around this. And I think we should be very mindful of that when we talk about these things, that there are actors for whom this sort of division is their goal, right? They they have a political goal here in the United States to create a certain division and to also brainwash a whole generation of young Americans. And we're seeing some really disturbing statistics, young Americans to hate Israel and hate Jews. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Everyone listening to this podcast has heard about the waves of anti-Semitism that have been engulfing the world ever since October 7th. I'm sure that many people listening have also experienced some of that anti-Semitism firsthand. There's something so fundamentally Orwellian when the reaction to the slaughter of 1,400 innocent people and the kidnapping of about 250 hostages is to demonstrate against the victims of the massacre. And that was before Israel responded. Now that Israel is defending itself against Hamas in Gaza, the canards about Israeli ethnic cleansing and genocide against the Palestinians have only become louder and more insistent. It's a frightening time to be a Jew anywhere. Many Jews have been able to relate to lines in our classic sources for the first time in their lives. Until now, for example, the words we say at the Pesach Seder sometimes seem like a remnant from the past. This promise has sustained our fathers and us, for not only one enemy has risen against us to destroy us, but in every generation they rise against us to destroy us. And the Holy One, blessed be He, saves us from their hand. Now these words don't sound like history. They sound like prophecy. To discuss this rise in anti-Semitism, I was honored to speak with Avital Shijit Goldschmidt. We talked about the reasons that the epicenter seems to be on elite college campuses, the ways that these anti-Semitic protests are different from others in recent years, some of the questions she has received as a Rebetzin, including whether a mother can buy a cross for her son to wear when he is with non-Jews, the conflation of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, whether the new anti-Semitism represents a loud but fringe phenomenon, or whether it's representative of a significant sector of the population. The problem of celebrities with massive influence weighing in on matters about which they know less than they think. What the Jewish people should do in response to anti-Semitism, and much more. We'll get to that conversation in a moment. First, I want to ask you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate it and write a review, and share it with people who'll enjoy it as well. I have a substack called Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, to which you can subscribe for free. 
The link is in the description of this podcast. My two most recent articles are entitled The Orwellian Jewish Problem about Antisemitism and the Catch-22 that Israel is in when it comes to the Palestinians, and Abraham 2023, about questions surrounding Akedat Yitzchak, the Binding of Isaac, and a way that Israelis are relating to it and reliving it today. Please also look for the most recent Intimate Judaism episode that Tali Rosenbaum and I recorded. It's episode 51 and is entitled Love in War, Strengthening Security and Connection Amidst Trauma and Threat. You can find that on IntimateJudaism.com or on your favorite podcast provider. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Avital Shija Goldschmidt is a writer living in New York City. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Foreign Policy, Vox, Vogue, Salon, Glamour, and Business Insider, among others. Previously, she was the life editor at The Forward and a reporter for Haaretz. Avital Shija Goldschmidt, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. We've all seen the appalling and frankly frightening anti-Semitism, which seems to have spread throughout the world and grown exponentially as time has gone on since the horrific attacks on October 7th. Let's just start off, Avital. I can ask you if you can mention some of the more egregious examples of anti-Semitism that you have seen or that you've reported on. Uh, In the last few weeks, right? Let's keep it specific. Um, I think... (sighs) Uh, You know what? It's hard for me to pick the most egregious. The obvious answer to this, I think it starts with campuses. Um, And I cannot believe I'm saying this because I was really not someone who was busy with uh, sort of doom prophesying about the state of campus, American campuses and Jewish safety on those campuses. I was not busy with this per se for the last few years. Um, I was proven all too blasé about this issue uh, in the last few weeks. To me, the most egregious is the normalization of justifying murder. That is, that we are seeing, I would say, arguably en masse in the United States. That to me is um, is the most concerning. Uh, we, I mean, there, there, there have been many cases and it's crazy how frequent um, at this point, it is already, it's become almost a norm every morning here in the States, people wake up. And I, I hear this from many people in the community as well. You, you open your phone and the first thing you're checking is well, what happened today here? Uh, obviously what happened in Israel, but people are, there's this real concern and sort of, we've already gotten used to that every single day there will be a new uh, incident. Um, this morning, last night, there was um, a video going around that I thought was pretty terrifying uh where a student at upenn was glorifying october 7th celebrating it with uh real glee to a crowd of cheerers something we i don't remember seeing anything like this then let me ask you about that specific aspect that this is coming in part from colleges and at least on the surface it seems the more elite the college then the more anti-semitic it appears, at least that's how it seems to me from 6,000 miles away. You mentioned UPenn. We've seen so much going on at Columbia, Harvard. A couple of days ago at Cornell, someone was arrested. A junior at Cornell was arrested for putting out on a chat group some really, really disgusting statements about killing Jews and destroying the local Jewish house near campus. 
frankly, when I saw those original texts before they had a suspect, I almost wondered if it was just a prank, almost even a, a Jewish person trying to show how bad it is. And when no, I found I, out it was I, an actual student. I literally, I thought it was fake. I thought it cannot be, it cannot be that someone would actually write this in Cornell. Right. In Cornell, right? I don't know if there is an answer, but can you give me your opinion as to why the colleges seem to be the epicenter of anti-Semitism? Because classically, it was the lower classes, people who are uneducated. And now it's coming from a place of high education. Yeah, I think there's an, um sort of abstract answer to this. And then there was a more practical one. The abstract answer is, I think there was something very broken about the way we teach thought, the way thought is taught in the liberal arts uh, today where almost anything could be argued if you just dress it up nicely. If you do enough mental gymnastics to obfuscate the morality or the immorality of something, you can argue pretty much anything. Um, and, and I think that intellectual exercise, quote unquote, has become normal. That has become normal. Um, and there have been a lot of really you know, amusing sorts of um, presentations of this. I think, that, I don't remember who it was, but there was a recent, I'll get it afterwards for you. There was a recent, um, some a few years ago, I think this was, a bunch of sort of cynical academics decided to test this out and they wrote these absurd papers and they submitted them um, for review and one after one they were accepted. And absurd things, I, I don't know, something like, you know, something about a dog, there was something about Mein Kampf, but they just like changed the, some of the words to feminism. You know, they, they, they submitted absurd things that made a certain argument and they were accepted because they because they fell under certain uh, wokeness standards that were that are sort of that are already the absolute group think norm in most of these universities. Um, so I think the culture of this sort of thinking uh, has certainly allowed uh, this to become normal, number one. Number two, we are seeing reports, and I, I believe them to be true, of foreign funds coming in to American universities pushing certain agendas, largely from Qatar. And that, to me, seems a very plausible reason for this as well. I mean, this... this um, interception, so to speak, of American education, it's just too coordinated, it's too thought through, it's too comprehensive, it's too broad for this not to be some sort of intentional plan. So I'm not a conspiracist, but I but there but there is some serious reporting right now coming out around this. Um, we did see something like this going on in our political sphere. And now we are seeing this uh, really revealed in our educational sphere as well. Um, and I think we should be very mindful of that when we talk about these things, that there are actors for whom this sort of division is their goal, right? They, they have a political goal here in the United States to create a certain division and to also brainwash a whole generation of young Americans. And we're seeing some really disturbing statistics, young Americans to hate Israel and hate Jews. And I agree with you. It sounds a little bit like a conspiracy theory, even though you're saying the evidence is actually there. When people say, oh, these protests for or against whatever cause we're talking about in any given climate are funded by Iran, Russia, China, usually I dismiss it because it just sounds like a conspiracy theory. But you're saying this actually has backing in the real world. 
of course it has backing in the real world. I mean, I, I don't, I actually wrote about this, um, a version of this happening also in Russia right now um, for Barry Weiss's The Free Press. I wrote about that whole um, very strange incident at the airport in Dagestan and Mahachkala um, and sort of what's behind this. And there, I mean, I argued that this is not an organic pogrom of people who just have nothing else to do. And yes, they're, they're probably some sort of latent anti-Semites, but there has to be some some incentive for them to come out there has to be some i don't i don't believe that a mob of this sort especially in this specific place would come out with some without some sort of coordination so i think this is true it looks obviously very different in the united states um but i but i do think this is true that there needs to be some underlying organizing that is pushing for this um and that is normalizing this and we're seeing I mean, I've been hearing murmurings about a whole number of influencers um, who are sort of rumored to be working with pro-Hamas organizations, forces, whatever it is you want to call it. Uh, what does that practically look like? I mean, I, I don't think it's some dark, strange conspiracy theory. I think it's actually quite simple. If you create a quote-unquote nonprofit, right, you you make it official in the United States, and then you hire influencers as quote-unquote consultants, right? There's a lot of things that can be hidden in the murky world of consultancy fees. That is how this works. I mean, we know Qatar does this all, in all kinds of places, by the way. They don't just fund anti-Semitism. They also, as I understand, hire people to whitewash them and pretend and sort of paint them in a certain way that they are very Western or that they are actually philo-Semitic. They're just anti-Zionist, but they're actually philo-Semitic. I mean, you, you see a lot of things like this happening as well. Um, so we just have to be aware that it's not actually so complicated to do these types of things in these days. Uh, and that it's using this technology, they they have figured this out. At Shul this past Shabbat, we had Dan Diker from the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. Uh, and he spoke very intelligently, very compellingly about, uh, he had this line, he said that Israel understands what is hard power, but they don't understand what is soft power. Israel knows what to do when something blows up in their faces, but they don't know what to do when, when their phone is blowing up. Mm. And I thought that was very well put because I, I don't believe with all of our very smart Hasbara and all of our very legitimate moral cases, it is very hard to work against a machine that is this deeply entrenched and has been building this sort of online presence uh, across the board for decades. At the same time, Avital, I would assume you would agree, but you can tell me if you don't, that in order for that counter Hasbara, the Qatarian Hasbara, or whatever you want to call it, to work, it has to have fertile ground. In other words, they're not taking people who are pro-Israel and making them pro-Hamas by giving them suitcases of cash. They're Absolutely. taking some influences and planting them in fertile ground for anti-Semitism. For sure. These are people who are already inclined towards, unfortunately, they are inclined towards what they call social justice. Um, and there are some people who are smart enough to figure out how to make a pro-Hamas stance masked as social justice. Well, let me ask one more thing about colleges, because I'll just give another example. Yesterday, there was a video going around about either a Jewish or Israeli student. I've heard different things. It's not clear from the video. Walking, maybe it was Harvard Yard, somewhere in Cambridge, Massachusetts, being 
not physically attacked, but blocked by a mob of people holding kafiyas and yelling shame at him, presumably for the crime of being Jewish or Israeli. And it turned out that one of the people who was doing this is the editor of the Harvard Law Review. That means it's not just a Harvard student, which already in its own way is impressive. This is the top of the top. My question is this, as difficult and as dangerous as this is today, is it even more dangerous in 20 years when someone who now is a Harvard Law student will actually be in Congress or in the Senate? Certainly. One of the things I'm, I'm pretty concerned about is also there's been a lot of pressure from Jewish or pro-Israel side, uh, and rightfully so, to identify these individuals and to publicize who they are. Right? If this is where your stance is, let it be public. Let it be known when you go to a job interview, when you go to wherever. Now, the concern is that that is going to build also, and I don't have an answer for this, but that is going to build even more of a resentment. We are going to be also called cancelers or whatever it is, you know, the way that discourse works today. Um, certainly these are people, yes, they are rising to the top. I'll say when my parents, my grandparents chose to leave the Soviet Union in 1979, one of the things that they would always talk about to me as a child growing up was we left because of the anti-Semitism in the universities. It was a very specific thing. Um, it was very, and I, you know, it was actually, I never really understood it until now. I never understood, okay, so the university was the anti-Semitic, but if everyday life is okay, then, you know, why would you leave? They understood that the university is the laboratory for society, right? This is, this is where the next generation of leaders comes from. And by the way, you can see that in, Russia today, that the people who are products of Soviet propaganda about the Zionists, you know, the Zionist machine are continuing that propaganda, are continuing to live up to that with the alliances that they are making, with the stances that they're taking currently during this conflict. That Soviet anti-Semitism, really it was the Soviets who came up with a lot of the way we think about this. And I really urge you to read uh, Isabella Tabarovsky's article in the tablet discussing this from a few years ago, she really lays out very clearly how a lot of this originated from the Soviets. And a lot of it there was also very much centered in the university spaces, not on mass, which is very interesting. Um, so yes, I'm very concerned that these are people who are rising to the top here in American society. And the other thing that I'm concerned about and something that we have been personally viewing, witnessing on uh, the last few weeks is we are seeing there's no other way to say this. We've had a few experiences and just sort of anecdotally seeing within our community in Manhattan how Jews are being pushed out of certain spaces, university spaces, as well as media and sort of intellectual spaces. I've been shocked by the amount of writers I've admired, writers, uh, publications, magazines that I thought were sort of adjacent to where I stood, suddenly taking on such horrifically anti-Semitic uh, stances. And I and I think from what I'm hearing, there are many people enduring going through this, many Jews who are experiencing the shrinking of their spaces, understanding that they are being pushed out of the spaces that they thought they once had a home in. Uh, and that is a very uh, disturbing experience to have. Let me ask you about that. When you talk about being pushed out of those spaces, do you mean 
intellectually or emotionally in the sense that I no longer belong in this space because I used to consider myself, for example, a progressive or a social justice warrior. And now I'm finding that the people who are on my team are actually against me. And therefore, no one's actually pushing me out, but I realize that I don't belong here. Or do you mean actually literally, we don't want you here anymore. You are no longer welcome. Which one are you referring to? Um, it's not so extreme as the latter, but because this is America and people still are polite here somewhat. Um, but certainly, certainly number one, where people feel emotionally, it's hard to go to work the next day. It's hard to sit next to someone who just said from the river to the sea on their Instagram last night. Right. Um, that I, I hear a lot of, um, but I'm also hearing, and I, I can't share more at the moment, but we've personally been experiencing as well incidents in which there was certain dis- certain discomfort okay in certain circles in the in here in New York City uh including visible Jews okay really yes and this is not around conversations even around Israel there is discomfort around including platforming elevating anyone who is a visible Jew right now and that is extremely disturbing um and and I my concern is that that is where this is going. Um, I'm I'm concerned that we're going to see more and more of this. Then I'm asking a very open-ended question, but over the past month, does it feel like a different America or does it feel like the same America with some other people who've come out from under their rocks and who are perhaps now voicing certain sentiments that before they would have kept quiet? My question really is this. Do you think it's a fundamental shift in what the United States is and that's the direction we're moving? Or is it that it's really the same thing and this is a blip, a dangerous and maybe very disturbing blip, the micro, but nothing has really changed yet? How fundamental is this shift? Great question. I sat yesterday at the APAC Women's Luncheon, um, and I heard Congressman Hoyer speaking about this. And obviously, Hoyer is from a previous generation at this point. Um, I Sadly, I don't think he represents his party at this point. Um, but it was there was a conversation on stage around President Biden's support for Israel. Um, and I, I do believe that America still has that at the top, at this moment in time, 2023, this government still supports Israel and stands with it. There's overwhelming support. Yes, there's a squad. Yes, all that. There's still overwhelming support for Israel. There's an understanding at the, I'm talking about the very top of the government. There is support for Israel. Um, This brings me back to the question you asked before, which is in 20 years from now, when that editor of the review at Harvard Law is going to rise to the top, what will be? That is a good question. I do think, unfortunately, I don't think this is just also what we're seeing right now, people emerging from the woodwork as anti-Semites sort of losing their masks. I think there are also some people who have been um, radicalized by some of the propaganda they have been consuming, uh, specifically Gen Z, specifically very young people who are online, who are consuming TikTok, which is owned by China, which has certain algorithms, which is pushing certain narratives, right? That we know this to be true. There's already reporting and data out there around this. Um, I think there are unfortunately plenty of people who are being radicalized in this direction. So I'm you know, I'm sorry, this is not a straightforward answer, but um, it's 
my husband has said this recently. He says, you know, when you go through a crisis, you know, it's not that you lose friends. It's that you realize who your real friends were to begin with. And I think a lot of American Jews are experiencing that right now. We're starting to understand who really would stand with us and who will not. Let me ask a question on that same topic then, Avital, because I have seen some polls, perhaps they're not that updated, but maybe 10 days ago, which showed that across all political parties, meaning Democrat, Republican and independents, support for Israel since October 7th has actually gone up, meaning I think a poll was taken around October 10th and then another one 10 days later or something like that, a YouGov poll I saw. And I don't want to quote the numbers exactly, but support for Israel actually increased and it was significant. The number of people who expressed strong pro-Israel sentiments in this poll, in this conflict, was about 50% of the population. The number of people who were anti-Israel was like 10%, and then there were some people in the middle. So the question is, is it just that the anti-Semites are louder, but we could say, and I realize this might be an overabundance of optimism, but the truth is the people who are pro-Israel, that's also going up. Those people are also increasing in number, and just we don't hear them as much because it's less radical what they're doing. Yes, I think Israel earned a lot of sympathy among moderates here in the United States after the the details of October 7th emerged. And and it's been sadly, but it's it's been validating to see some, you know, a lot of network news TV has been really supportive of Israel in a way that usually they sort of go both sides. And here it was really unequivocal. Um the polls show this as well, which is why I'm sort of, I'm not panicking right now about the state of anti-Semitism. still. I'm still not panicking. Again, I think that um, time will tell where in 10, 20 years from now, the younger generation, which is probably not being captured as well in the data that you just cited, where they fall on this, um, given that they are very heavily influenced by propaganda on campus and also on social media. Right now, I'm, I am I feel okay in this way. Um, but again, a vo- even if it's a vocal minority, it's a concern. You know, I don't have to cite to you uh, voting statistics from the 30s in Germany, but you don't need that large of a majority to really change the political tenor of a country. And there is certainly a concern that this is where things are going despite the current optimism that we may want to hold on to. Okay. You know, I was speaking to my brother this morning. He lives on Manhattan's west side, and he mentioned that he has seen posters ripped down. This is the famous situation of people putting up posters of Israeli children and adults that have the word kidnapped on the top, and people have been videoed ripping them down and sometimes also putting up a replacement, which has the word occupier instead of the word kidnapped. I realize this is a purely emotional reaction, but to me, there's something so fundamentally cruel about ripping down posters of little kids who have been kidnapped. And at the same time, the New York Times says the ripping it down has become a form of protest. Let me quickly read something from the New York Times on October 31st. The New York Times wrote, In the weeks since the war in the Middle East started, the kidnapped posters created by Israeli street artists have grown ubiquitous, papering public spaces across the United States, Western Europe, and beyond. Available to anyone with an internet connection, they can be printed out and pasted onto lampposts, boarded up storefronts, and subway entrances. 
Displaying the posters has become a form of activism, keeping the more than 200 hostages seized by Hamas in full view of the public. But removing the posters has quickly emerged as its own form of protest, a release valve and also a provocation by those anguished by what they say was the Israeli government's mistreatments of Palestinians in the years before October 7th and since the bombing of Gaza began. I felt that this was truly a disgusting way of describing it, a form of protest ripping down pictures of little kids who've been kidnapped. This isn't really a question of Vital. I'm just throwing this out to you to get your, your feedback. To me, there's something just so inherently cruel about ripping down posters of people who were kidnapped and are currently being held hostage and seeing it as some valid form of, I don't even know what, of pro-Palestine, pro-freedom, pro-social justice activity. And maybe you can give me an explanation or just what you think about that as well, if you think there's anything else to add. I mean, yeah, I agree. It's disgusting. One of the we've been really busy with this. Um, the women in our community, we really mobilized. Um, we're just constantly hanging up flyers. I've been spending hours doing that. It's been an interesting experience, I have to say. I was just telling someone about it that I feel like it's almost like, you know, installation art to have to stand in the street in the middle of bustling Manhattan, literally in Midtown on Madison Avenue taking out these flyers and taping them onto those lampposts. The process of putting them up was also, I'll be also be honest, it's it's also stressful. It's anxiety inducing because you don't know who's gonna walk up behind you. Um, and so 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 the, it's been a very important part of what, how I think American Jews have really uh, tried their best. And I think by the way, it's a very powerful project because Social media, you can be bombarded by a million different narratives and all this mental gymnastics, and you're going to hear about occupation and ethnic cleansing and all these words. But when you just see this walking in the street, it hits in a very different way. So it's been a very important part of the effort for Israel here in the United States, and certainly those taking it down. I mean, I think the Times characterizing it as protest is, frankly, malpractice. It's it's like saying October 7th was resistance. I mean, the narrative building, the words that they use are so specific and they're so, it's almost, it's becoming fictional. This isn't protest. This is, I mean, could you imagine someone taking down posters of like Boro Haram, the, the girls who were kidnapped, right? Like no one did that. No one did that. Why is this political? And here it is for some reason. Um, I think it's been also really, an interesting exercise to see who were the real anti-Semites living amongst us. I mean, it's, and again, when it happens like a few blocks from where you live, it's pretty disturbing. It's pretty disturbing because these are people I stand behind them and, you know, in line to get coffee every day. So it's, it's been um, disturbing. It's disgusting. All those words. I don't have much else to tell you about that, but it's definitely been a battlefield here. Uh, these posters that I, I don't think the creators of this campaign even imagined what this would become. Yeah, it's extremely disturbing. In some ways, it highlights this distinction between, and it's a false distinction, between anti-Zionism or anti-Israel activity and anti-Semitism. The videos that have come out of people tearing them down are not always, but often accompanied with the person being videoed, ripping them down, spewing invective against Jews as opposed to against Israel. So that shows it there. I want to suggest that this particular and current outburst of anti-Israel slash anti-Semitic activity is different from what has happened in the past, at least in 
large places in three different ways. And I'm curious if you agree with this. The first one is, again, that idea that anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism really are different phenomena. And now it seems like that is just false. It's pretty clear that in a great number of cases, if not most of them, it's the same thing and no distinction is realistic. The second difference is the fact that the anti-Israel rhetoric now, or anti-Semitic rhetoric, is no longer talking about Palestinian rights so much as it's talking about the destruction of the state of Israel. This is not about a two-state solution, which I hear nobody talking about anymore among those people advocating for Palestine. They're talking about, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which means what happens to the Jews? Either kick them out or kill them. Those are the only two options, clearly. And, I mean, some people will say, oh, no, they can be a minority in a Palestinian Hamas state. Good luck with that. And the third difference that I see is that the number of people willing to express these sentiments, the previous two sentiments out loud, is far greater than in the past. Do you agree with these three differences? And do you have any more to add to what I said? Yeah, I think those are really good points. Um, I think there's been a real, okay, your first point, you spoke about the anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, for sure. Just to add to that, one of the things I've been noticing among American Jews in New York is that even those who sort of would lean liberal and wouldn't necessarily identify as, you know, flaming Zionists, I'll put it that way. Um, I think there's been a certain realization for themselves that deep down, they know, they planned that if things get bad here, they'll have somewhere to go, right? And that, that has really emerged, and I hear this all the time from American Jews, that that has been something that they held very, very deeply down for years. And now that has come out for them um, with all of the shatterings of many illusions that they've experienced right now. Um, your second point about liberation of Palestine being the rhetoric, absolutely. I, I'm not seeing anything about two-state solution, pretty much nothing. And part of the really disturbing part, and again, I do think this is coordinated script, you hear a lot of discussion about Israel committing genocide. I haven't heard that from mainstream sort of liberals in America to this extent as much as I'm hearing it right now. It's very disturbing because it seems to me that they're using that language very deliberately in order to justify their own genocide that they would like to commit. That is what is at the core, right? And we know that this is something that that has has been done before to sort of to accuse someone else of something in order for you to be able to be justified in doing it to them. So that I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about. Um, the third point you made, people are empowered. People are empowered when they, by the way, like, I think I was very cynical about all these inane celebrities commenting on conflicts. I mean, it, I always rolled my eyes about it, but now I'm seeing that every single time a celebrity makes an ignorant remark about a conflict like this, it empowers hordes of regular citizens to believe and to say certain things that are absolutely false. Uh, but we're seeing that. We're seeing that. And um, and that is certainly disturbing. It's just been, they've been empowered and certain language has been normalized. And again, the denigration of language in the, the American political sphere has been an ongoing decline for many years now. We have to understand the context, though I know that's a bad word these days. But in this case, we do have to discuss the context. This has been ongoing since at least 2016. 
Right. I want to get back to celebrities in a moment, but before we get there, I want to comment on what you said about genocide, because I'm interested to hear what you think about this. You said that perhaps, psychologically, the reason that people accuse Israel of genocide is in order to justify their own desire to see Israel destroyed. I wonder if it also might be an echo of this inherent guilt of the Holocaust. In other words, if we say that Israel is committing genocide, then the fact that the world turned a blind eye when six million Jews were slaughtered in the 30s and 40s, well, they do it too. So maybe we're not so bad after all. I wonder if that's part of it too. It is possible. Um, I don't I don't think most people are that wracked with guilt about the Holocaust, to be honest. I, I don't think they care. Let me take it a little further, though, because one of the interesting phenomena that I've noticed here is the denial of what happened on October 7th, literally days after it was videoed and proven to be true. And that reminded me in some ways of Holocaust denial, where in spite of all the evidence, it doesn't matter what the evidence shows because I don't want to believe it, I'm going to deny it. And the strange part about Holocaust denial in this manner is that the people who deny it are the same people who also say they want it to happen. In other words, the big Holocaust deniers are not historians. No, they are Nazis. People who they say- They want to do it themselves and they want to do it right this time. Right, exactly. They say, Hitler didn't do it. We wish he had, almost, that sort of thing. And I think in some ways the same thing is happening now. No, it's not true that Hamas actually killed these people. It's not true that civilians were slaughtered. It's not true that anybody was raped or the babies were beheaded. And I could go on. But at the same time, it's fully justified to do that because Israel is a colonizer. Correct. Um, I, I think that I think that is true. Part of part of the tactic is to deny and then, you know, in the effort to try to do it oneself. I mean, listen, again, I, I keep coming back to the Soviet Union because I think our understanding of that history is really important right now. After World War II, there was rampant denial of what was done to the Jews by the fascists, right? The communists refused to acknowledge that this there was a systemic murder of Jews on their lands. Um, I mean, this was seen probably most egregiously in a lot of the monuments at different massacre sites, Babi Yar most famously, but there were many, many others where they would bemoan the deaths of Soviet citizens. They never mentioned that there were Jews murdered here. Uh, and this was really systemically erased from any sort of written official, any sort of history in the Soviet Union until decades later. In Jewish circles, people knew that things had happened. They did not have any idea of the extent of things they did not know much about. Um, besides for whatever family narratives they had, there was no there was no official history books. Many Jews only found out the extent of the Holocaust when they emigrated decades later. Um, but what is interesting is that <laughs> there was a similar effort to erase the history of the Holocaust right after it happened in the Soviet Union. And there is a lot of scholarship that suggests that there was an effort to create their own, there was a final solution in preparation and Stalin died before he could do it. And I wonder if that was also a similar sort of thing. They wanted to deny that this had happened and then they wanted to do it on their own. Interesting because the communists despise the fascists, maybe even more than people in democracies and republics. It's known that communists and fascists are diametrically opposed. You would think, if not for perhaps a plan by Stalin or latent or open anti-Semitism, they would want to highlight that. Exactly. You would think it would help their cause, but it did not. Let's get back to the celebrities. 
it obviously can drive people absolutely crazy when you see a celebrity who presumably is not a scholar of Middle East history opine about things which he or she should not be discussing without doing a lot of research first. And the problem is, as much as it would be normal to just ignore them because who cares what they say, people do care what they say. We're talking about people who have millions upon millions of followers. And as you mentioned, 2016 might have been a watershed moment for celebrity and politics intersecting in a way which actually has a real effect. Is there anything that we can do in order to try to tip the scales a little bit because celebrities, it seems, very often end up being on the social justice side of the aisle? That means in the same way, many of them are now advocating for a ceasefire or advocating on behalf of Palestine and not on behalf of Israel. Is there anything that we can do to move the needle a little bit in the other direction? So it's a great question. I mean, I think it's already some of it has been done. You have Jewish celebrities. One that first one that comes to mind who I think has been doing amazing work is Amy Schumer, um, who have been really, really vocal on their uh, perspectives uh, and intelligently so. Uh, That is really important. But I think uh, actually just had a call about this last night. There is some... uh, sort of organized sort of effort to try to get between celebrities uh, and influencers within their circles, uh, whether that's agents or brokers or whoever it is who, I don't really know the industry that well myself, but people who are in those orbits um, to really educate their friends who are in these spotlights uh, to talk about this. I don't think this is something that someone like me could really have an impact on. Um, but there are a lot of really smart uh, Jews or friends of Jews who are in places like this who are trying their best to do that. Um, I don't know how much there is for an ordinary plebeian like myself to do. <laughs> okay. I've seen numerous politicians, Avital, recently, and most prominently the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, conflate and put together anti-Semitism with Islamophobia. In fact, we're recording this on Thursday, November 2nd. Yesterday, I think it was, the Vice President of the United States set up a task force to combat Islamophobia. Now, let me make it clear. Islamophobia is wrong. I don't think people should be Islamophobic. To set up a task force for Islamophobia in the month of November 2023, when Jews around the world and in the United States are feeling a vice closing in on them of anti-Semitism, seems bizarre, except that obviously we've seen this before. Can you comment on the way that these two phenomena are conflated in many people's minds? Yeah, I mean, listen, let's be, let's speak about this frankly. There is terrible Islamophobia. A six-year-old boy was murdered in Illinois for being Muslim. I mean, this is, and it's a travesty. And I'm sure there are other cases as well that are Uh, seriously concerning to innocent American Muslims who should not be bearing the brunt of this conflict, of a conflict that is Hamas's fault and not not their religions. Um, So I think we as Jews have a a moral obligation to to defend our Muslim neighbors and to really, and to support whatever it is. If there's a task force being created by the White House, good. I mean, yeah, I I want American Muslims to feel safe here. That's so important. I think the conflation thing is, is this reflexive, very American attitude of both sides. Well, people on both sides are suffering. People on both sides are wrong. People on both sides have their, you know, have their uh, grievances and they're legitimate. I think the data shows, and I didn't know we would be talking about this, I I should have prepared before, but we're talking about 
the data shows that hate crimes in certainly New York City are vastly more anti-Semitic than Islamophobic. The data shows it. Now, is it slightly perhaps skewed because Jews may be more likely to report something or they know to report something? It is possible, but I don't think that margin is that large. Um, so we're talking about, I, I don't want to quote the wrong numbers, but it is several times more anti-Semitic hate crimes than Islamophobic. Um, so it's it's a hard, it's not a fair conflation. Both are important. Both are important to protect American citizens. There's no question around this. But I do wish, I do wish there was a more acknowledgement from, from federal government around the very serious fears and anxieties that American Jews every single day are facing right now. So, I mean, we're getting some of this here in New York. We're getting, uh, Governor Hochul has been sending out constant emails around this. Um, Adams has not been as vocal. He was a little bit in the beginning, but he's, we haven't heard much from him uh, lately. Mayor of New York. The mayor, yes, the mayor of New York. It's concerning that we're not seeing more acknowledgement of these anxieties uh, in those spaces. I mean, just anecdotally, the amount of Jews who have asked us recently if they're if they can remove the mezuzahs from their doors and put them inside is really this is something very new. This is something I've never seen before in my lifetime here in the United States. And there are many other questions like this. One common thing that I've been hearing from American Jews is that they've uh, it's going to sound silly, but they've changed their names on their Uber accounts. So they don't know who's picking them up and they don't want to have an obviously Jewish name. I mean, I had I had a mother ask me whether it is okay to buy her child goes to some extracurricular in a non-Jewish space, and can she buy her son a cross to wear, to sort of ward off it, like a really extreme question, but it shows you the absolute fear that people have. Um, much of it is inspired by, I believe, inherited traumas and stories from previous generations, which President Biden did mention in his speech, I thought very beautifully. So that is really coming to the surface. But the fact that, and this coupled with the incidents that we are seeing on campuses and random street corners, people tearing off posters and the online hatred that is coming out and the people we thought were colleagues and friends or people we admired were suddenly coming out and saying that the liberation of Palestine trumps the safety of Jewish people this is all happening at the same time. And I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think many of our elected officials understand just how severe it is. I agree with that. I'll also say that once again, as I mentioned, and as you said, Islamophobia is wrong. It's not that we should ignore that. The problem is when they're put together, when you say, well, I'm really upset because people are targeting Jews. And then we hear, well, it's almost the equivalent of all lives matter. Oh, well, you know something? All these hates are bad, and it sort of undermines and minimizes what you're experiencing as a Jew. Right, because also the origins of these hatreds are different. So in order to be able to diagnose an illness well, you have to be able to uh, to really scan that part of the body. You can't you know, just do a scan on everything and say it's all bad. No, you have to figure out how to treat that part of the body first. And, and, and that, yes, it's an all lives matter thing, um, and it's... And they just manifest themselves differently. I think it's just, it's 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 an intellectually lazy approach to conflate the two. Let me ask you, Avital, now that we're here and the anti-Semitism that we're seeing is real, the anti-Israel rhetoric is notched up to a level we've never seen before, at least not in my lifetime, en masse. Do you think that there's something, 
and I'm not speaking about celebrities, I'm talking about people like you and me and the people listening today, is there something that we should do? In other words, do we need to improve our messaging? It could be that it doesn't matter how our messaging is. It's an anti-Semitic issue, so it doesn't matter. But maybe there is something that we can do differently or in addition to what we're already doing in order to better get our side of the story, which we believe is the side of good, out into the open and more in the public sphere. I've been thinking a lot about this question. What concerns me is I do believe there is, we're up against a very strong force that again is, I don't believe is purely organic masses coming out, but there are uh, organizations and governments who have, who have a very serious reason to support this sort of anti-Semitic rhetoric, to normalize this and to justify murder, very simply. I think is what else is there to do? I mean, we have so many brilliant, I really think we have brilliant messengers of who we are uh, in the English language, at least what I am seeing. And after October 7th, I think what, what is really hard also is seeing everything that came out and then the denial afterwards. And the, the fact that this did not totally sway the entire world's opinion to understanding what Israel deals with on its very borders. That is something I still can't comprehend. So I don't know what else can be done. I mean, they came in and murdered 1,400 Jews, uh, Israelis, excuse me, and 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 that was not enough. Like, and then, oh, and then we had to apologize for that. <laughs> we had to apologize for being massacred, right? So I, I don't know what else can be done. Part of the problem is, again, I think a lot of the spaces of influence have gone so far to the other side. Um, whether it's publications in media or or universities, that it's it's very hard to get in there and to talk to people and try to wake them up to understanding how wrong this is. I mean, look at the New York Times response to their own misreporting on the hospital, right? That it was so it was spineless. It was spineless. And we're not we're not seeing I, I'm not seeing much of a mea culpa in those spaces. And I don't know and I say this to someone with so many relationships in that world. I don't know anymore if we can, if if sort of soft power is the way to do this anymore. Meaning, I don't I don't think sitting down with someone for coffee and trying to explain to them our side is going to work at this point because I think it is so entrenched the certain narrative that they want to build again around social justice and around ethnic cleansing and that. Israel is a genocidal state and that we oppress and that it is apartheid and it's an open air prison. And there are so many justifications for killing babies. So to my mind, some of it has, it's gone already too far. And there's a big part of me that's also starting to wonder what, like, why am I even trying to make this case anymore? Like, why am I begging for acceptance among the Goyim, among the nations? You know, why am I begging for it? Like this is, I know we are right. Why are we trying to make this case? And it, it's it's a tragic, eternal Jewish position to just beg for our lives, to beg for our rights to exist as ourselves. Um, so I, I'm just, I'm very cynical about the ability to really influence those who are already convinced. Again, we are seeing a lot of moderate Americans who I think woke up to understanding what Israel is dealing with. But those who are busy with these platitudes, I, I don't know if, I, to me, they're beyond salvation. If, they, if they're not able to see 
with moral clarity the situation, I don't know what will move them. Okay, Avital, I have one final question for you, and it's on that same topic. And it's about doing something big, but as you said, it might not be worth it to convince anybody. But I'll cite Rashi, the very first Rashi in Chumash, where he says, why did God open up the Torah with the creation of the world? Because koach ma'asav higileamo, the power of his actions, he wanted to tell his nation so that we would know that Israel is ours. My point is, it doesn't say so that we could tell anybody else. God wanted us to know it for exactly. It's our own knowledge so we could be confident in our own position. His actions he told to his nation. So when people claim that you're robbers, this is Rashi, we will know for ourselves that's not true. So I wonder this, and this is, I'm just curious if you've seen anything about this because I'm not in the United States. We see these massive demonstrations. We saw 100,000 people, I believe, in London demonstrations across the world, in Turkey far more than that, and in the United States also on college campuses, big demonstrations saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Is it time for us as a Jewish community and those people who support us outside of the Jewish community, for example, in the evangelical Christian community, to have a very, very big rally and to say, you know something? We need to show ourselves that we stand for something and we believe in it. I remember, Avital, when I was in 12th grade in 1987, our whole high school went to the Soviet Jewry rally that took place when Gorbachev visited Reagan in Washington, D.C., And I have no idea how much that affected American policy or Gorbachev, but I know it affected us. It's something which we still remember, and it gave us a sense of pride that we're doing something and that we care. Maybe it's time for Jewish people to do the same thing. Maybe it's already happening. What's your opinion about something like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think Natan Sharansky actually just called for this. He just called for a mass um, Jewish pro-Israel rally. Um, I think you're right. I think there is strength in it for ourselves to come together. And this is something we've been seeing on a smaller, not so small scale with our shul in the city. We are seeing ever since October 7th, the demand for shul and for community has been beyond. We have people who are not shul goers, people who are, you know, three days a year type Jews are showing up to shul, are asking how to get involved, what can they do? Uh, we're seeing a real awakening and it's not spiritual partly, but it's also communal. People need to be around other Jews right now. Um, they feel isolated and these spaces, whether it is shul or it is going to a rally, gives people a lot of strength and hope. So I think you're right. I think it is important, but I think the, the goal is more for ourselves rather than the world. I don't think we're convincing anyone by going out into the streets. It's, it's for ourselves to gather. Okay, well, Vital Shida Goldschmidt, I really appreciate your time and your expertise, and we should all hear good news, Bissarot to vote. Amen, amen. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. 
You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.